Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we're here doing a first for the show. We have uh, the pleasure of welcoming a, a, uh, uh, an interview for the first time. Uh, we haven't read this book yet on the show, but uh, luckily I have. And uh, I was really hoping that I could uh, have the pleasure of interviewing this person. So uh, luckily he agreed. So uh, we're welcoming to the show, Mr. Scott Christensen. Hey, Scott. Hi, how you doing? Good. Uh, so, uh, Scott here, uh, he worked for many years in award-winning architect firm in Kotal Kar Yaw Architects in Aspen, Colorado. He was then called to ministry and attended the Master Seminary in Sun Valley, California, which we're all pretty aware of. And he graduated with a Master's of Divinity degree with honors, and he now pastors Summit Lake Community Church near Mancows, Colorado, between Mesa Verde National Park and the beautiful La Plata Mountains. And he has a uh, wife and four boys that he lives with. And your one of your sons just had a birthday recently. That's that's correct. Yeah, a <laughs> there couple days go. ago. Yes. So, um, I I um, picked up uh, Scott's book that we're going to be talking about. Uh, what about free will? Uh, actually, he wrote a guest column for um, Tim Challies, who I'm always sniping uh, really cheap books from or really good ideas for books. And uh, that was it was my one uh, book for for my Christmas list, uh, which uh, is usually qu quite long in the in the book list. Uh, but I wanted to make last year my I'm going to try and figure out free will, determinism, uh, you know, the, this this this, this, this whole this whole stuff. this whole thing. <laughs> and so I, I was I was really I was really set. I was I had like um bondage of the will all set i had uh, scott scott did a, a top 10 list for for tim challies on on the best book on the subject and of course he humbly put his book at number 10 which i appreciate <laughs> um so i figured i'd start with his because uh sometimes reading john edwards you have to you have to look for the period in order to uh uh you know figure out when to take a breath um but uh i i i uh, got through Scott's book in nine months. And now I don't want to say that's a misnomer against Scott's book because it's really was up to me highlighting more things. In fact, if I could give a piece of advice for this, uh, highlight what you don't want to highlight in this book because everything else will be what you really want. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was a great book. And, and uh, Scott, we appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, being our first interview. Well, it's my pleasure. Sure. So um, kind of give us the structure of, of what this book is like, because uh, what about free will? Um, uh, you know, you, you do t t tend to cover more than just uh, the, the other side, although I do have to say uh, in, in uh, people like uh, Michael J. Kruger, um, he always presents a, a well-formed and, and presented argument for the other side that's fair and balanced. And that's one of the main things that I noticed first about, about your book is how fair you were to the other side mm -hmm. so that you could accurately and fairly deal with the best arguments that they have. So can, can it can kind of uh, line up uh, uh, how you decided to lay out your book. Well, um, I had a professor in seminary that said that if you're going to be effective in, in promoting the truth and, and you're dealing with someone who disagrees with you, it's far better to accurately represent their position in a way that they themselves would present it uh, and then critique that position than trying to create straw men, uh, which isn't helpful to anyone. Yeah. And, I, and I think Calvinists have often been accused of creating straw men for Arminians. And, and I also think that you have to you have to look at what are the best arguments for a position, uh, not at what are the weakest arguments for a position, because those are easy to knock down. 
you know, mm -hmm. but what are what are the what are the strongest arguments uh, that a position makes, and then how do you address those those issues? And so, so that's what I tried to do, and I, I laid out the opposing viewpoint, which is known as libertarianism, and um, not not the political viewpoint. But yeah, um, thank goodness that, that would have been a hard yeah. hard book to get through. <laughs> exactly. So um, so I lay out their position, and then I critique that position. Um, in the first two chapters, and, and then I begin to lay out the case for what is known as compatibilism, um, and, uh, and of course, compatibilism and libertarianism are terms that are part of the modern sort of language of philosophy and theology. Historically, those terms weren't used. If you look at historic creeds and confessions and and even, for example, Jonathan Edwards, from whom I draw a lot of inspiration, didn't use those kind of terms. And so, so they're new terms, but they're helpful to help distinguish what somebody means when they talk about this topic of free will. Yeah. So when uh, when people say that they're libertarian and 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 how they're understanding, so they they believe that uh, in essence uh, anything that would force them to make a choice then would not be a free choice. So it, it's kind of hard to, to, to think of someone who believes that because if you look just at our, our, our world today, how many things influence us to make choices, it seems like a, 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 uh, you're already trying to, to, to make a, uh, you know, when, when you talk about physics, you, you always try and make the, uh, the world without, um, without uh, 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 um, a friction or, or gravity uh, to, to make the, the the math work better, but here it seems like it's a it's a hard thing to 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 do. Yeah, so so it might be good, Scott, if we can step back for just a minute and maybe lay out uh, the terms here so that folks understand exactly what we're talking about. Because you're right, you know, these are relatively in terms of the history of uh, philosophy and especially theology, relatively new terms. So compatibilism. My guess is many people have probably never even heard of that. And of course, libertarianism, most people, as you say in your book, if you ask people on the street, you know, they would say, of course, I, I have free will. You know? Right. So right. maybe you can kind of lay out, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, distinctions between those terms and, and then maybe tell us uh, why you, uh, you, you know, libertarianism, why that doesn't seem to work from your perspective. Yeah, so so when most people use the term free will, they probably have something in mind along the lines of what libertarian free will teaches. And uh, so even if you go back to to Augustine in the fourth century and and the what is known as the Pelagian controversy in which he dealt with this question of free will, you know, this this the term free will itself has been used throughout the ages and not mm -hmm. just among Christians either. This has been a question among secular philosophers as well. Right. Um, you know, so, but, but um, basically the idea of libertarian free will, especially as it's carefully defined uh, by theologians of the Arminian persuasion, it's usually associated with Arminianism, open theism, uh, even Molinism. These terms might, your audience may not be familiar with, but these are, these are, uh, positions that, that are taken by those that embrace this notion of libertarian free will. It basically has two ideas. The first idea is that any choice that we make 
cannot be sufficiently determined by any factors whatsoever, um, including God himself. Hmm. So in order for a choice to be free, it cannot be in any way determined or have some ultimate cause other than our own freedom of choice. So it must be a, a choice that, that is generated independently by ourselves and have no connection to any other determining factors. Um, so that'd be, the, that'd be the first plank of libertarian free will. And that is the most common um, distinction, you might say, of somebody who holds to this notion of libertarian free will. So, so the idea there is that we just make our choices kind of arbitrarily arbitrarily and uh, and there's no causal factors other than that we just made the choice yes and and uh, and that's an important you, you introduce the word arbitrarily you know most people who espouse free will wouldn't say that their choices are arbitrarily made right but if there are no sufficient causes for for why a choice is made then ultimately it boils down to well I just decided to do this. I don't know why I did it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that can become a problem if, if you cannot point to sufficient reasons for why you made a particular choice. So, and it's important to understand that when we're talking about the idea of choices being determined or there being reasons for choices, mm -hmm. that there is a human component you know, or, or a, an earthly component, we might say, you know, circumstances, your own internal desires and things like that, that may have an impact on the choices that you make, but they aren't sufficient causes for those choices. Mm. In other words, you might so, have a certain inclination to, to choose, you know, blonde haired girls, you know, <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but you always had the freedom to act against that, you know, that particular you know, desire that, that a person might have. And, and that so, leads to the second plank, yeah. you know. So what, just before you, you get there, sure. Scott, so is that, is that the distinction that you've made between uh, reasons and causes with regard to choices? Yeah, I, I'm not trying to draw too sharp of a distinction between okay. reasons and causes. Right. Uh, I, I use those terms somewhat synonymously. Just, okay. you know, the thing that, that people need to understand is that if you get deep into the philosophical literature on this topic, sometimes the distinctions are so sharp and so many that you just <laughs> you get confused in yeah. a overwhelmed <laughs> yeah it, it's very easy to get overwhelmed in this topic and there's a just a ton of material written on it at a very high level philosophical you know level that that many people would just be completely overwhelmed but so yeah when i use the terms you know causes or reasons usually i'm using those terms somewhat synonymously in, in the book okay but um, so 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 that would be the first plank that our choices cannot be sufficiently determined by anything. And that particularly includes God himself. Mm. We cannot say that God determines our choices. Otherwise, we're not really free. And, and there's reasons why people who espouse libertarian free will will say that. And I can get to that in a moment. Okay. But let me just mention the second plank. The second plank is the idea that that you could choose in opposing directions in the same circumstances. 
So let's say that you're walking down the road and you come to a fork in the road. You could easily choose to go right as you could to go left. And if you replayed that whole scenario and all the circumstances were exactly the same, you know, one moment you might choose the left-hand road and the other moment you might choose the right-hand road. And so this is called, um, you know, contrary choice or the, or the possibility of alternative choices mm -hmm. so that so that freedom of will means that you could have equally chosen a or chosen not a you could have chosen a or you could have chosen b and, and there's no sufficient causal reasons as to why you would choose one or the other except your own freedom to do so okay. and, and so that's the basic definition of of libertarian free will and uh, so you and let, let me just make one other point about that. One of the reasons why people who espouse free will, Arminians and open theists and, and, and whatnot, is because they assume that if God determines our choices, then they must be coercive. Right. In forced, other words, God, right? God must be forcing us to act yeah. against our will. Yeah. And and that's and that's an assumption that is made about the Calvinist position, which is what I espouse in the book, um, that somehow Calvinism means that God coerces us or forces us to act against their will. And there is no Calvinist that ever said that. Right. Uh, and that is certainly not what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Calvinism teaches that the that God determines the means as well as the ends. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yes, All right, so exactly. that's 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 libertarianism, you know, the free will. Uh, so what about so your position? You've called Calvinistic uh, compatibilism, right, <laughs> or something yeah. like that? <laughs> yes, yes, and compatibilism is basically a term that means that human responsibility and freedom is compatible with the idea that God is sovereign. And what Calvinists mean by God's sovereignty is that he meticulously decrees everything that happens in history, in the world, and in people's lives. So that there's nothing that falls outside of God's decree. And that's kind of the language of historic reform confessions and whatnot. Uh, such as the Westminster Confession, um, you know, chapter 3.1 uh, talks about the decrees of God. Uh, you know, what God has determined is going to happen. So that basically God has laid out a whole plan for history even before he created the universe and that he will ensure by his providence that everything that he has decreed will in fact take place. So anything, anything good, anything evil, ultimately, in God's in God's sovereignty, has a purpose. There is no purposeless action or evil, or uh, you take the the worst thing in history or the the best thing. Uh, each was decreed before uh, time began by God. Exactly. There's there's nothing that happens by chance. There's nothing that happens apart from God's. First of all, mm -hmm. God's foreknowledge. Uh, but his foreknowledge is always tied to what he has already determined is going to take place. Mm. And so really, when the Bible speaks of God's foreknowledge, it's basically a way of saying 
you know, speaking to what God already knows is going to happen, that he's already decreed is going to happen, and he's just telling us beforehand what that is. So, for example, when you look at Old Testament prophecy, um, you know, or even New Testament prophecy, uh, it's just basically a, a, a delineation of God's foreknowledge uh, in terms of what he has decreed is going to happen. So when we read all the prophecies about Christ's birth, uh, about his death and his resurrection, these are all things that are that are related to God's decree, and he has knowledge of what he is going to do in the future, and therefore prophecy is just him revealing to us and telling us what he's going to do in the future. Yeah. Um, and, and so foreknowledge in the Calvinistic uh, understanding of Scripture is directly related to God's decree. So, so generally, or usually, then the sticky wicked, <laughs> sticky wicked here with this, with this is that somehow then that you know that means determinism, right? Where mm -hmm. you know we have to, you know, that somehow, and it seems to take away from our freedom. Yeah, we're the yes. robots. Yeah, yeah. exactly, mm -hmm. and and that's where the word compatibilism comes in, that our choices can be determined by God, and some Calvinists don't like that language. Mm. Some Calvinists mm. shy away from the language of determinism. But it's because they fear that when you use the word determinism, that somehow that automatically undermines the notion that humans have any kind of freedom or responsibility for their own choices. And that is certainly not what Scripture teaches. Um, so Scripture teaches two truths. It teaches, number one, that God has determined everything that is going to happen. If you read, basically, if anyone sits down and just spends time reading Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 48, mm -hmm. just read those those nine chapters in Isaiah. And if you don't walk away from that, understanding that God determines everything that happens in the history <laughs> of the world, well, then you're not reading Scripture with careful eyes. Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, you know, that, that truth is very apparent throughout Scripture, but also side by side with that reality is that human beings are commanded to do certain things, that there are certain obligations that are placed upon human beings. We are obligated uh, to God as our creator, uh, and, and therefore that indicates that we have a responsibility and, and certainly, you know, I just read something today on Facebook where somebody said, well, Calvinists believe that we don't have choices. <laughs> that's, that's, that's absurd. Um, you know, of course we have choices. Of course we have a will. The Bible speaks of the human will all the time. Mm -hmm. The question is, what is the nature of that will? Is it free in the libertarian sense or is it free in some other sense? And basically, compatibilism teaches that, yes, we are free, but we are only free to act in accordance with our desires. And so whatever the nature of our desires are, the desires of our heart, that is going to determine the kinds of choices that we are going to make. And, and so that uh, if, if your desires are corrupted— that that is the result of a corrupted nature. So that a particular type of core nature to our human constitution, our human souls, if you will, if we are, if we are operating from a sinful nature, a corrupted nature, uh, then all of our desires are going to be corrupted. And if all of our desires are going to be corrupted, then the choices that we make are going to correspond to that. So Jesus, for example, in Matthew 7 and Matthew 12, 
uh, talks about how a bad tree only produces bad fruit and a good tree only produces good fruit. Mm -hmm. And if you want the good tree to produce good fruit, then you have to make the tree good, which mm -hmm. is assuming that the tree starts out bad and it has to be made good. And I think he's alluding to the to the necessity mm -hmm. of regeneration. Yeah. 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 I, I think what's important here, too, is um, how grounded we have to be in Scripture uh, because you either have to believe one of two things. Either man is the ultimate free agent who can direct uh, his will, or it's God who has the ultimate. And it depends on how exactly you start with your presuppositions. Either you start with man's reasoning and reason up to, okay, this is who I believe that God is, or you take a scriptural approach and you say, uh, you know, here in 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 um, Genesis, where um, you know Joseph is lamenting with his brothers, uh, saying, you know, what you uh, did to me, uh, you meant it for evil, but God intended for good. That that compatibilism is seen completely through. And if we don't ground ourselves within the Scripture, um, I remember uh, listening to an unbelievable podcast with Justin Briley, and the the t two debaters on on free will or compatibilism. Uh, didn't pull out any scripture until like the last uh, two minutes of the broadcast where they were uh, starting to talk about Genesis. And it was like, an insane concept to me because uh, y y there you have the possibility of, of, of lighting up your, your straw men there if we don't have a, a biblical basis for uh, where we ground ourselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, we here uh, on this show, we, we, we've enjoyed William Lang Craig's uh, apologetics in the past. But sometimes he uh, starts with his philosophical presuppositions and moves up to God, and we kind of see where he ends up uh, uh, in in the in the stick of it. Yeah, yeah. The important thing about this uh, understanding the nature of this debate and why often there is such a wide divide between, say, Arminians and Calvinists, <laughs> is because we're not just talking about individual uh, interpretations of particular passages of Scripture. We're talking about a whole worldview that yeah. informs the way that you think about God and, and, and human beings. And so this gets into systematic theology. It, it gets into the broader scope of, of the whole biblical narrative uh, in, in terms of how we view um, that. I really believe that, that the core of this debate goes back to our view of God. Who is God? Mm -hmm. um, Anselm, who is a, an important medieval theologian, uh, basically said that God is someone of whom we cannot conceive someone greater than. Yeah. And, and so if you can conceive of a being that is greater than the God of the Bible, well, then the God of the Bible would not be God. Right. And yeah. so you haven't basically, gotten to God yet, right? <laughs> exactly. So the God of the Bible is the greatest being that could ever be conceived of. And even at that rate, there is a level of incomprehensibility about the nature of God to which we simply can't plummet the depths of, of, of who he is. And I think that part of the distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism um, is that I think Calvinism has understood that its whole view of scripture, its whole view of reality, of life in it, of existence, of salvation, and everything else uh, about who we are as human beings is directly related to who God is. And so a high view of God is going to determine how you begin to 
view other things, particularly your own self. So that, that the doctrine of anthropology, which is the doctrine of what the Bible says about humanity, about man, uh, is, is subservient to what the Bible first and foremost says about God. In other words, theology proper. And so, and I think Arminian kind of flips that. Arminianism starts with man and says, well, who are we are? And then how does God enter into the picture? And so there's a kind of autonomy that I think is unfortunately at the root of our Arminian thinking. And, um, and so man becomes Lord and God becomes servant to, to our, our agenda. And I think that's what you see happening in the gar- garden. You know, the whole temptation in the Garden of Eden is is the idea that that God is not authoritative. God is not Lord. You can be your own Lord. You can you can set your own agenda. Um, You can determine for yourself what is good and evil. You don't need God to come along and tell you what what's good and evil. And you don't need God to come along and tell you what you're obligated to do. You can set your own agenda. And and so. Right from the very get-go, the sinfulness of mankind is rooted in human autonomy and not in the lordship of God, who is our creator and sustainer and lord of the universe. And, and so, so my point in saying all that is that if somebody is not coming from the perspective of this massive view of who God is, they are going to lose sight of these smaller questions about, well, how do we reconcile free will and God's sovereignty and things like this? Right. So, okay. So where we've gotten here then, at least with regard to the compatibilism, God has decrees, he's determined, and yet we are free, but our, our free choices are based on our desires, right? Kind of who we are, the the new tree, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So so basically, freedom, as compatibilism defines it, is that we always act in accordance with our strongest desires. So whatever the strongest desire at the moment of choosing, from the human perspective, that is, that that determines what choice you're going to make. You know, you are going to make that choice. And so that that you know there and of course there's a whole set of 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 things that influence what those desires might be. There might be certain circumstances in your particular situation. There might be certain internal inclinations that you have, certain personality traits. You know, there there can be a whole host of different factors that come into play. But when all that stew, all the ingredients in that stew is mixed together, out will emerge. Um, a certain set of desires, but the kinds of ingredients that are thrown into that stew are always going to be determined by the basic nature of the person himself. Mm. So that if we have this basic nature that is corrupted, then all the ingredients that go into that stew are going to be affected by that corrupted nature. Mm. If we have a regenerated nature, as the Bible speaks about the process of regeneration, then that's going to create a new set of desires that are not corrupted um, and, and, and affect the kinds of choices that that person is going to make. Okay. So I might, so what I'm guessing then is that uh, in terms of God's decrees and how he operates, my guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not saying that he, he, you know, arranges the circumstances so that our desires 
you know, uh, match what he wants us to do. But maybe he puts the desires there or maybe a little of both or, or, or what? What do you think here? Yeah. Um, no, I do believe that God determines circumstances um, and, and that he sets forth the conditions by which somebody will make those choices. But what we need to understand is that God rarely ever accomplishes things apart from means. And so this is what theologians would call primary causation and secondary causation. Okay, so that God is the primary cause of what happens in the universe, but he doesn't just directly cause things to happen. Generally speaking, he uses means, he uses instruments. For example, you could read, um, if you carefully read in Isaiah chapter 10, he talks about uh, the Assyrian king. And how he is, you are my instrument of judgment to this evil nation called Israel and Judah. And um, you're like an axe. You're like an a hammer that I use to wield in my hand to wield judgment. And yet we see in that same passage, it says, after I've got done using you to wield my uh, purposes of judgment, then I am going to judge you judge. for yeah. in your own heart having evil desires yeah. uh, by which you did this. And so, um, so it's an interesting passage because it shows that God had a purpose in using the Assyrians and the Assyrian king to accomplish his purposes, which was judgment. And yet in their hearts, they didn't intend the same thing that God intended by using them. In their own hearts, they intended evil. God intended good. God's good purposes were judgment. Their purposes is that we want to be despots and walk, you know, walk around the countryside and wipe out these nations because we're power hungry, you know, evil warlords. And so um, and so that was their motivation. And that proceeded from the, the, the depravity of their hearts, whereas God could, could determine the same exact event, the same exact uh, decisions that they made, and yet God would have good purposes for those things. And, and so compatibilism basically says there's a dual explanation for everything that happens in, in the world. There's a dual explanation for every choice that we make. God has... Uh, is the primary cause of those things, and we are the secondary causes of those things. Uh, a second um, way of looking at that is that God is the remote cause of those things, uh, whereas we are the proximate or immediate cause of those things. So when we think about our choices, we're not first and foremost thinking, oh yeah, God caused me to do this. No, we are thinking of our own particular desires, our own particular reasons for the choices that we make. And so we really don't necessarily see the hand of God in the choices that we make. But that doesn't mean that he's not present in what's right. going on. You see that, for example, in the life of Job. When you look at Job chapters 1 and 2, you see two planes. You see the plane, the heavenly plane, where you have this conversation between God and Satan, where God <laughs> has determined, hey, I want you to go test this man, this righteous man called Job. Go do this to him, but don't do this. You know, and so he determines what is going to happen to Job. Well, does Job have any idea of what this conversation is? No, it's invisible mm -hmm. to him. All he knows is that his children have been killed. All, all he knows is that he's got some strange skin disease, you know, that, that has come upon him. And he's wondering, what in the world happened? 
you know, and, and so he doesn't see that there is a sovereign God in the heavens that have determined certain things that are going to happen in his life. Uh, he can't see that. All he sees is the earthly plane. He sees what's happening in terms of decisions and choices that people have made and doesn't realize that behind all that stands a sovereign God. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. With the uh, the kind of final minutes here, um, how, how does this affect us in, in our walk? How does this topic uh, affect us when it comes to things like how we think about salvation or uh, preaching the gospel to others or even in apologetics? How, how, how can we um, uh, get across in our own minds that this is a, a really important topic? I think it's very important because it affects how we think about the Christian life. Um, you know, and, and, and I give a number of examples of that, especially later in the book where I try to draw out some of the practical implications of, of this view. So, for example, in evangelism, we understand that ultimately salvation is of God. If anyone is going to be saved, it's because God has chosen them for salvation, that God has drawn them by the power of his Holy Spirit to themselves. And, and that that is the only way that they're going to be saved. However, God doesn't just zap people with salvation. He uses <laughs> means, right? He uses instruments by which he accomplishes his sovereign will. In fact, he chooses not to accomplish his sovereign will apart from those means. So what are those means? Well, it's the preaching of the word. It's the need for faith and repentance, Right. And, and so a great example of that would be, for example, in, in, in Acts chapter 16 with the conversion of Lydia. You know, if you look at that passage, it's, it's Acts 16, 14. You know, Paul is, is preaching in, in the city of Philippi and there's a group of women that are meeting for prayer at, the, at, at a riverside. And, and there's this, this Gentile woman, Lydia. And, uh, and basically the, the verse says that, uh, that she was listening uh, to the things that were spoken by Paul. And as she was listening to the things spoken by Paul, it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond. Mm. Okay, yeah. now there, there, there are four things there that are really important, and, and they're all contained in the verbs that are used in that, in, in that verse. Number one, you have the word listening, mm -hmm. you have the word uh, respond, and you have the word spoken. So the word spoken refers to Paul preaching. Right. Paul preached. That's necessary. If somebody is going to be saved, the word of God has to be communicated. People will not get saved unless the word of God is communicated to them. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 10 when he says, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right. And, and so um, so the word must be communicated. People cannot be saved unless they hear the truth. Uh, the factual truths of the gospel concerning what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection and, and so forth. Um, secondly, a response must be made to that message. And the response is faith. So Lydia responded in faith to the things spoken by Paul, right? And mm -hmm. But in order for her to respond, she had to listen. Right. So she couldn't just respond without hearing, without knowing what the message is. Right. So you have to listen. You somebody has to speak. Somebody has to hear. And then the hearer has to respond in faith. So those 
three things are necessary for salvation, but they're not sufficient for salvation. A fourth component must happen, and that's what we yeah. see in this passage, which is the Lord opened her heart. And what did he do to open her heart? He opened her heart to respond. In other words, he caused her heart to be transformed. He caused her heart to see the truth of the gospel and, and to respond in faith. And I think this is just another way of Luke telling us that this is a work of regeneration. Um, uh, it's the effectual calling of God. It's the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, which I think effectual calling and regeneration are, are basically two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, and, and we do see this throughout throughout uh, church history, including after the Reformation. I mean, you have there, there's a reason why John Calvin sent. Uh, pretty much men into Rome and Italy to 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 die uh, to spread the good news. It wasn't a oh well God will get to it in in the end and he'll save who he wants to save. There was a a, a general heartfelt desire to go to the people that they were protesting against as the broad, new, newly formed Protestants and to uh, take a, a dangerous message to a dangerous place. Mm -hmm. for them. Exactly. And, and what the Reformers understood and what every good Calvinist understands is that Calvinism does not teach fatalism. This is one of the, the, the accusations that is made against Calvinism is that it, teach fatal, that it teaches fatalism. <laughs> what is fatalism? Fatalism is the idea that what will be will be. God right. has determined what is going to happen, and there's nothing that you can do about it. That is not true. No Calvinist has ever taught that. God always uses means. He allows us to participate in his sovereign plans. And, and in fact, they are necessary for his sovereign plans to be accomplished because he determined that they were necessary. So, that, so that's so, why we so see So there is something you can do about it, right? There is something. You are part of what the, the something is that you're doing about it. Absolutely. We yeah. are responsible. We are responsible to preach. The sinner is responsible to believe, to repent and believe. Um, uh, and in the same way, when you're talking about sanctification, the, the believer is responsible to obey. You know, God doesn't just zap us with holiness. You know, he requires us to responsibly read the word of God and to obey the word of God. Um, you know, this is why Paul says in, in, in Philippians 2, and he says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right. And so obviously there is hard work there. There's blood, sweat and tears that are involved in 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 moving toward holiness and moving toward greater spiritual maturity. But in verse 13 of Philippians 2, Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? It's his good will that we should be conformed to the image of Christ. And he's going to make sure that we do so. This is why he says in Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's a promise based on the sovereign will of God that every single believer will be conformed to the image of Christ. There's no doubt that it's going to happen. It's a promise of God. And he ensures that that promise will happen. But how how does he do that? He does it through our active obedience to the truth of Scripture, to the commands of Scripture, to living out our lives, you know, in obedience to our Lord. And, and so you see the, the this dual 
uh, reality in scripture all the time that God sovereignly determines what's going to happen. And at the same time, we are responsible to respond to um, to the commands and, and precepts that God has laid out for us. Um, and, and the same thing with apologetics. You asked about apologetics. You know, we persuade men concerning the truth of the gospel. And if we need to defend the claims of the truth of the gospel, God uses our reasonable defenses as a means by which people are persuaded of the truth or persuaded against some, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, charge brought against the Christian faith in some way. And so absolutely apologetics is necessary uh, because God uses the means of apologetics to clear away the debris of objections that people have to the Christian faith in order that they might see clearly the truth of the gospel. And so evangelism and apologetics work together. Well, uh, I guess that means we're still with the job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Scott, Absolutely. Scott Christensen, the book is What About Free Will? Reconciling Our Choices with God's Sovereignty. Uh, I'll be posting links uh, in the description below. Uh, to the the book, uh, to Tim Challey's article uh, for maybe you can get through two books in a year, uh, unlike uh, me, but that's fine. Uh, we can all brag about being farther than Patrick. That's an easy thing. Um, Scott, where, where can people find more about your work and any upcoming work? Yeah, they can. They can. They find, can find me on on Facebook. Um, uh, I, I'm frequently on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, they can look me up. My, my Twitter handle is Pastor Scott C, at Pastor Scott C. Um, I do have a, a web blog. I don't really post that much on that, uh, but they can find me there too. It's called A Love of Aletheia. Aletheia is a Greek word for truth. Um, and that is M Scott C at wordpress.com I, I every now and then i post some things on there but uh, but yeah twitter and facebook they can find me i am working on a new book uh that um, i'm hoping to have complete uh by the fall and then it'll go to the publisher uh after that and it is on the topic of the problem of evil if god is good uh why is there evil in the world um and i and I present a, a uh, reformed or Calvinistic theodicy. Theodicy means um, uh, how do you defend God against evil, charges right. of evil. So anyway, uh, um, yeah, that's the best way. Get on Facebook or Twitter. And yes. uh, I'm, I'm, I post things about my book and, and, and whatnot on there. Yes, the, the book... Uh... Uh, you were a featured uh, uh, author at the uh, Legionnaires Conference this year. And this book, I, I have to say, it's it's well laid out. Um, it's not dry, boring, or by any means. Uh, there's definitions in here. Uh, there's questions to make uh, make you think that you knew what you thought you read, but then you have to go back and find those answers in the book. So, so it, it allows you to study. Yeah, it's it, a study. It, 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 you know. Again, nine months it took me, but again, that's that's on me, not not on the quality of the writing. So uh, we we love the, the the problem of evil here. It's probably one of the ones that we uh, attack the most, just because it's the most fun one to 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 try and get uh, unbelievers to pin them down on a definition of uh, uh, how how do you define good, how do you define evil, 
without a, a worldview of, uh, of of objective truth. So um, I, I hope you come back and have us be like maybe the 16th uh, interview that you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks yeah, for thanks. being our first. Yeah. You bet. All right. All right, everyone. Uh, you'll join us uh, next time for our uh, next book that we're doing, whichever one it is uh, when this uh, interview comes out. So thank you.